Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm Raquel Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. Writers are often under pressure to follow rules, to write to the market, to carefully fit themselves into a safe cultural and commercial niche. You have to stick to one genre and follow the standard recipe for that genre, or else audiences will get mad and your book won't sell. At least, that's what certain publishers say. But some writers know better, thank goodness. In this episode, we are joined by author Naben Ruthnam to talk about writing without limits. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm based in Toronto, here in Canada. And yeah, I've been writing seriously since my late 20s, but probably only publishing at from age 35 on or so. And I my first book out was nonfiction, followed out with thrillers and various other things. So I've been writing all sorts of stuff for quite a few years now. Right. I, I looked it up. You've written several books, and they're in a lot of different genres and a lot of different areas. There, you wrote a literary fiction book called A Hero of Our Time. There's a body horror novella called Help Meet, which a whole lot of people in our Discord are really enjoying. There's a nonfiction book called Curry, Eating, Reading, and Race. And under the name Nathan Ripley, you also wrote a few thrillers, Find You in the Dark, and Your Life is Mine. Yeah, that's that's it. That's a list. There's a, there's quite a few. Still that's no a lot of books, man. Yeah. I was always annoyed at first that I couldn't get a short story thing going because I won like a couple of prizes that are supposed to be Canadian important, but that never got off the ground. But in retrospect, looking at the stories I had at the time, maybe only like three of them are good. So it, it worked out well for me to not have that. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Now, has it been difficult for you in any way to work in these really, really different modes? I mean, from behind my desk? No, it really comes naturally to me. And I read so much old fiction, fiction of the past. And I think of somebody like Edith Wharton or Henry James or Graham Greene. They don't they wouldn't have really wrestled with these genre dilemmas to the degree that sort of the market asks us to now. And I mm -hmm. think sort of if we've grown up as readers from a certain generation, maybe younger than Boomer, yeah, we're not used to seeing writers do these multiple things unless they make sort of a big display of it. Like when John Badville's like, I'm going to write a, a detective novel now. And that's actually like front page art section news that he's doing something that different. That was a really unremarkable thing to do, you know, as recently as 67 years ago. So I think I'm actually doing something kind of old fashioned. Right. Edgar Allan Poe, I mean, he's famous for his horror, but he wrote detective stories and he also wrote a ton of comedy stories. That's right. And really good essays, too. And he's also a good example. And he was desperately scrambling to make a living. And I can't leave that out of out of why I do this and also why I write for TV and film as well. I write I do a lot of screenwriting and 
try to make my way into TV writers' room, rooms up here that might not have much to do at all with the worlds I go into in prose, but right. they allow me to write prose. Yeah, yeah. Now, I noticed you use a different name for your thrillers. Yeah, I, t- I talk a little bit about that at the very end of that first book I wrote, Curry, because when I was 14... I, I was I was having this actually same dilemma we're talking about at the same at that time I was I was more troubled by it because you know I wanted to write Nabokovian Saul Bellow works of genius literary genius which I was sure were within my grasp because I was right. fifteen and hyper arrogant <laughs> but I also wanted to write werewolf movies and comics and things like that because I love that stuff very purely and I, I really wanted to do both and I thought it, it's just necessary to have two different names for the market which I think actually there's still some logic to that especially now that the, that these markets tend to be so siloed off from each other in terms of what what readers want in genre X versus genre Y so yeah I chose Nathan Ripley when I was a teenager because my thinking being Nathan sounds kind of like my name and Ripley was actually from aliens because I really liked uh, I loved aliens so that oh, yeah. took Alan Ripley's last name as time went on, Patricia Highsmith actually did end up being probably my favorite psychological thriller writer. So Ripley took on it a different resonance. But then as time went on further, of course, I couldn't ignore when I was 26, 27 and making the decision of mailing out this manuscript or approaching agents for the first time. Uh, do I do I hang on to this sort of wasp name? Like, does it look like I'm white facing? Is that what I'm doing? Mm. And to me, I certainly wasn't. Like, it's still, it's a very pure creative impulse I had making up that pseudonym when I was a teenager. But I knew I had to kind of address it publicly in some way. And for one thing, the pseudonym's totally transparent. You, you turn that book over, you see my picture, and it says, Nathan Ripley isn't a Ben Ruthman. And I also had to acknowledge that there was a certain, I, it did make me happy that to, to choose a name that sort of blank that, uh, that the manuscripts would be arriving on editorial desks with without any expectations attached. I felt mm-hmm. it was like a more anonymous place to come from. And that that was sort of, that was pleasing to me for reasons I went further into in Curry. Yeah, well, we'll definitely get to that closer in the uh, second half of this. And I'm looking forward to talking to that. But something I have noticed reading some of your fiction Oh, sorry, I'm jumping the gun. Have publishers ever tried to get you to stick to one niche or to use different pen names when writing in another genre? If they have, the conversation has been so subtle that I haven't picked up on it. Because the fact is, I think that my lack of branding, which of course is a word that I'm air quoting and I'm grossed out to be using, is an issue. Like at first it was interesting that, oh, he writes, he he won a short story prize, but he also writes, uh, he writes thriller fiction under a different name. That was actually something that was interesting to media and perhaps to readers. But eventually I was just, the way I put it online the other day was there's a very good chance that if you really liked one of my books, you won't like any of the others. Because <laughs> so often like audiences really do want a single thing from, from an author. Yeah. They want reliability and, and they want to know that the next book is kind of like the book before it. So I'd be surprised. My agent certainly has never said this is a mistake. She's actually delighted and excited that I do different things. But there's probably a reason why almost all my books have come out with different publishers. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I did notice that there are different publishers and that. And I'm guessing just if you're writing in different genres, you know, different publishers. This is the horror publisher. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, there, there's obviously some natural shape to like moving around from between publishers, but I always wonder if, you know, if I circle back with the Nathan Ripley thriller, I'd love to be with the same teams that I was before, but I don't know. Have I, has my career since then been so inconsistent that they might not want me back? There's a really good chance that the answer is yes. And that's a, that's the market's dictate. So I would never have any sort of personal grudge about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a bummer. Now, I, I notice you're working in these very different areas, these very different types of stories, different types of novels, but have you been able to use some of your talents in one area for a story in another area? Like, do these skills sort of translate across these these barriers? Oh, I think so. I certainly think, for example, like my, my piece of horror fiction is very much the recent development. Help me. It's very much the same part of my mind as all the literary fiction I write. To me, those, mm-hmm. those places are very closely interrelated. The psychological thrillers are different because I do write those, even from the first draft, a bit more with an audience in mind. I feel that that is part, especially these days, of that genre is that there are, there are audience expectations in, in, in that world. So sometimes I do have a hard time going back to it. Like I've, certain, I've written over the past few years, I think three, yeah, three, three misfires of, of uh, the beginnings of psychological thrillers, getting up to page, you know, 60, 70, 80, and realizing I don't think I'm doing this correctly, <laughs> which, you know, mm. I do think, I don't think it's a sign that my skills are flagging, but sometimes I think it's a sign that um, my ability to get back into thriller mode is flagging a bit. It hasn't, it hasn't been that way with screenwriting. Like for that, it seems more job-like. So if I'm writing a horror script or a crime script, I find it really easy to turn that switch on it and be, and do the work that needs to be done there. But I don't know when the all prose is just prose, right? It's so close to each other that sometimes I do get confused between the genres in a way that might hold me back from completing something. Now you mentioned uh, the, the expectations of psychological thrillers. What are some of those expectations? I think, well, right now in the very current day, 2022, I think an absolute page turning propulsion has become increasingly key that there's, there's a few writers that have managed to stand outside that uh, Tana French comes to mind, but I think a lot of them, especially the ones that really explode and burn up, which of course dictate the ones that editors want to acquire after that, they tend to be very, um, what if this happened to me situational stories that are often like they establish a character like, lightly and then they put that character in a scenario that is very like plot propulsive whereas that you know as i alluded to earlier i i like patricia highsmith i like ruth rendell's psychological thrillers a lot which have a lot of pages of people thinking in houses sitting in houses and thinking about what they're going to do next mm-hmm. and that's something that's always in my mind I, I can't i don't know if that audience and my writing can still connect but I think that's also an effect of not having broken through to a stratospheric level of success. Mm. You start having very specific kinds of doubts. I don't have doubts about my abilities as a writer, but sometimes I have doubts about what, if I can please a certain audience. Mm. Right. Right. I see. Something I have noticed, I've, I've read your horror novella, Help Me, and I'm reading A Hero of Our Time. And I am noticing this eerie similarity between them in that for me, both of these are horror stories. Like both of these have a real sense of body horror in them. And both of them are about 
sort of a shape-shifting monster that steals people's identities in a way. I like that a lot. And yeah, I mean, somebody, some, the body horror thing has been brought up before, but in terms of the shapes shifting and identity stuff, I, I hadn't made that connection until you raised it with me just before we, we sat down to speak here. That's really interesting. And I mean, I did write them in such close proximity and you write about the things you write about. So it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I think you're right. In other words. Yeah. I like I'm reading it and just these very, very carefully, calculated conversations and the ways that people are talking to each other. Like for me, that just, that is a horror story. Yeah. The you idea mean of having to right talk now. to someone like this or having to talk like this just makes me feel ill. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, it's definitely, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a corporate nightmare, I guess, I guess some, some copy could say, but to me, like it is, yeah, I guess you're right. It's the horror in it is pretty intimate and violating. In, in a year over time because you're you're being asked to alter things about your identity and about how you're perceived until it becomes almost desirable to you to control that delivery of yourself to another person and i mean the the one thing that i did know consciously about this book is that the levels of deception deception of everybody in here has a central lie in their life and in so many different beyond masks like so many different personas that it actually, it never tips quite into the absurd, but it certainly tips into the unrealistic because I am trying to point at something satirically, for lack of a better word. But that stuff gets really scary. <laughs> and it does end up, yeah, it, the horror elements really do creep up through that, that constant unrealistic masking. I think, I think they just pull it into like a weird uncanny sphere. Yeah, yeah. And, and the sense of body horror too. You have this description of a man's, body just falling apart in help meet and it's absolutely horrifying but the way our protagonist talks about himself physically in a mm. hero of our time I, yeah. I, i've noticed a lot of similarities in there too yeah i mean that's it's one of the more brutal parts of the book and actually one of the things that i i knew was going to make it a tougher sell initially and then perhaps like something that really just led people to close it after the after the 10th the page. I mean, it's, it's not a non-body positive novel, but no, certainly that, <laughs> that, that, that character is not very positive about his body. No. I, and I, I really did try to root everything he says into, into the way he perceives others and himself. Like it is, it's part of the plot. It's not just cheap jokes. Granted, right. there are a lot of cheap jokes in there that I do find funny. I don't want to lie about that, but as it develops towards the end and you, you understand sort of the, the real holes in perception he has, and you really begin to doubt the way he sees his body. I feel there's like a, a satisfying payoff to that for anybody who is distressed by that kind of body horror and, you know, self-hatred at the beginning. There is something, it, hopefully I've made it worthwhile by the end. Yeah. I mean, I found it very real in, in a way. You said you were afraid that that would make it harder to sell. That would make it harder to, to get people to read it. Uh, why do you think so? Because it, I mean, it doesn't, the template heroes of uh, this. I mean, this is a novel. We should we should talk maybe a bit about what it's like. It's about um this character called Osman Shah, who's working for an educational technology company, and he chooses basically this arch rival called Olivia Robinson, who he sees as, as a woman who's going to be taking over the company because he just sees how how great she is as, at using other people's diversity stories as sort of stepping stones 
to her own rise in the company. And she's also a killer salesperson with, with great ideas. And he becomes very fixated on sort of finding a way to take her down. And also in the, at the same time, he's really dealing with what a disappointment he is to himself and how distant he is from his family and his beyond inability to connect with the person he loves who also works at the company. Is not, he's not the way heroes in books like this that are being published now are. In, especially in Canada, where I feel it's even more rigidly moralized, it tends to be, um, and again, I'm, 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 I'm not being categorical. This is not every literary novel, but in a lot of these, in a lot of diverse novels, there is, um, the bad mainstream white world. And there is the sassy person of color who's, um, fighting for a spot in it and eventually for some sort of dominance or just recognition or just wanting to get by. And that person can often be, you know, flawed. They can often be promiscuous or too modern in some ways for the people from their culture and just not good enough in other ways for the people in mainstream culture around them. To, to me, this is a, when you see a novel set in Toronto or Vancouver, that is this, these incredibly diverse, incredibly rich cities where, which are very incredibly rich and incredibly poor stories where like the story of race and class often don't line up in these places. I really wanted to explore that with a, with a quote unquote hero who is not a hero, who's unpleasant and doesn't look at himself as somebody who's perfected, but misunderstood. Right. Right. And now were you worried that that would turn off readers or more that it would turn off publishers? Before submission, I was definitely worried. I, I was reconciled to it, not selling. It, it meant a lot to me. I really liked the book and I was, I, I was pleased with it. And I felt that I, it had remained uncompromising in the ways that I wanted it to. While at the same time, like thanks to helpful editorial from friends and, and, and my agent, I'd gotten it to be a better story. So I knew that I had enough distance from it to, to fix the things that didn't work and to hold on to the things that I cared about. But yeah, I did think that, you know, if I look at the other, 11 diverse novels that were on, on the sked for that spring, I was pretty sure that mine would be the only one where the person of color protagonist was this actively unpleasant and this displeased with himself yeah. as a person. And I mean, I, I do think it's been a factor in why, in why I haven't had any knocks at the door internationally for publishing deals. I mean, I guess my, my thinking, my extremely naive thinking is, well, if you stand out from the other stuff, then maybe you'll sell better because at least your work is different. Your work is unique versus here's a million other generic stories that are all the same. I th and I, I, you know what? I think that still is true if you, if you are really, really great. I think that's another factor that doesn't come up in conversations like this enough. I think people are too often convinced that they're their book is the shit and they nailed it and it's so great. And the only reason it couldn't be selling either domestically or elsewhere is that people just aren't getting it. Sometimes mm -hmm. the book is just not great. Yeah. I think this one's pretty good. I th I do think it has, it should have had a shot in, in many markets and I think it still could, mm -hmm. but I do think that there are these like unique outlier books that are just so you cannot dispute how good they are and they, and they cut across and, and, get a place on the publishing list. But I do think for the most part, you know, there's a reason why comp titles are a part of every cover letter. There's a reason why your editor wants to find those great comps when right. they're talking about your book to the sales board. It's because the thing that's like the other thing that did well 
which these days is more and more. If you like these two TV shows, you might yeah. enjoy this book. That's that's what makes you more of a sure thing. So I think it was actually a pretty reasonable, reasonable worry that this is not, this doesn't take a couple of crucial boxes in terms mm. of the category. So right. it might be left out. But I was wrong. Like thankfully, a couple of editors were really into it, and and I I got one that I really loved to really understood the book. Yeah, that's good. Oh, just for some of our listeners who might not know, could you explain what comp titles are? Yeah, comp. I guess it's a short for comparative or comparison. It's just when you're pitching a book and if you're, whether you're a starting out writer trying to get an agent or your agent is pitching to a pub, to an, a publisher, it's uh, two book titles, usually like recent bestsellers or recent books that did well or sort of landmark titles that are really recognizable, great books like The Secret History or something like that, that your book is kind of like. And increasingly, if you're working in, in fields like a thriller or rom-com, things like this, those titles are leaning towards being more TV and film, which I, by the way, think is kind of a mistake for the industry to be, to be excited about. Oh yeah. I see it all over genre. It's comparisons to TV shows. Yeah. If you love this TV show, you'll probably like another TV show more than you'll like reading a book. That's the, the thing. Like the, it's, the ones yeah. that make me insane is when the comp titles are of TV shows that are adapted from novels. That's that's something. That's a real mind bender. There's an edition of uh, Push by Sapphire, which became the movie Precious. Right. And it's a it's. I wish I'd bought it. It's a great movie tie-in edition, because it's it's called uh, Precious, based on the novel Push by Sapphire. Like that's on the cover itself. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, I should have bought that. Yeah, or I, I think it, the one that drove me insane was seeing The Haunting of Bly Manor. X whatever else and I'm like you know there's a there's a really famous book that this was based on it's a pretty good that one that Bly Manor was based on there's yes. a pretty famous book that's very funny most people know this book that yeah. that, that, that was the one that drove me insane that's that, that is a good good comp good comp <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. you could compare yourself to this really amazing landmark literary horror story that's been Extremely well appreciated for several generations, or you know, Netflix show. Yeah, so. but I mean, that's the, when it came to when I was looking over the Hero of Our Time materials and cover letters. I wasn't going to say, "Oh, if you like Bernard Malamud and and Philip Roth, right. you'd love this book." Like, that's not going to help me sell any titles. Right. They're old. We're not doing this. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bummer. Now, as as hard as it might make it to sell things or to sell yourself or your personal brand, do you think there's value in writing beyond genres of, of or these little niches of, of defying conventions of not cooking by the same recipes that everybody else is cooking with? I think there is absolutely. For, for one thing, the most like practical hack thing about it writer's block ceases to exist because as you start to write cross genre, it becomes increasingly rare that you'll be only writing one project at a time. But for me, the, I mean, the most important thing remains following your interest. And to me, I have so many different kinds of literature that I'm really interested in, which is why I'm sort of at peace right now with not writing, having written a psychological thriller for a while, because I'm not that interested in reading them right now. So mm -hmm. I'm following my interest as a writer in terms of competing with the books from the past that I love a lot and the books in the present that I that are in my mind but also both hero and helpmeet are 
ways I have of sort of interpreting my internal and external worlds. Like Hero, I mean, so many of the ideas in that book came from me wondering like, how, how could I put this in an essay or how can I write this in a tweet? And this thing that really frustrates me, this thing that is, is really at the core of a lot of things that I think are wrong in the world. And it took me quite a while to realize like, oh my, that's, that's what a novel is. That's what a novelist does. Like you actually apply all these things to, to the page. And then with Help Me, that was, that was just images and ideas and things that I thought would be a movie. And then I realized like, no, I'm actually really consumed by this idea of um, what a relationship is, what, what servitude is, what, what, uh, what power is within this relationship sphere. And I realized like, this doesn't make sense. This wouldn't be a good literary novel, but it would be, it's the stuff of a good piece of horror. And I've always wanted to write, to write horror because I love it so much. And I finally feel like by writing all these other things, I got to tackle the genre that has meant the most to me for the longest time. Yeah, it, it is a great book. I'm a little curious. You, you said Hero came from something you were frustrated about, some big thoughts you were having. Could you go into that a little bit more detail? Like, where did it come from? I'm just wondering how many Olivias have you met? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, well, first, like, disclaimer, Olivia is not based on anybody. But she is she's based on everybody, basically, which is – that's kind of where Hero of Our Time, Lermontov, in, like, the second edition, he says – he got attacked when that book was published saying like, how could you write this disgusting romantic hero? Who's not at all a hero. And it must be based on your own sordid life. And he replied, it's not based on me. It's based on you. And it's, it's the same with Olivia. I feel that it's about a certain kind of a, it's about the disguise of a will to personal power in altruism and caring for all those around you and for the downtrodden, which is extremely common, extremely common in, literary spheres, extremely oh, yeah. common in corporate spheres. If you have a day job, there's somebody like this at your work. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. it. They've found a way to use something very pure that was designed to elevate people of color and other diverse people. And they've found a way to use it as a terrifying bludgeon for personal power. It recurs every day. I see it literally every day online or outside. Yeah. And I didn't know how to come at it in, in a non-fictional way. Because it's also very complex. As you move through this novel, maybe because I'm such a Robert Caro nerd, I began to realize from the outset, even Olivia Robinson couldn't be a pure villain. She can't be. She can't be a Darth Vader. She has to be somebody who's complex. Because Osman is not a pure hero, and it becomes clear, like as you move through this book, that she might be a real means to an end person, and that end might not be pure personal power. It might actually be altruistic, like like Lyndon Johnson's work but every single means she used to get to that end involve hurting people and lying. Right. Yeah, it, it is really good. And, and I feel a little guilty about it, asking you so many questions with it of it when I'm only halfway through. And I feel a little bad because it's, it's a very hard book to get outside of Canada, unfortunately. So to our listeners who are not Canadian, uh, sorry. <laughs> Hopefully that gate will open at some point soon. I'll find a way, either, even if it ends up being my current publisher just distributing it into the States. But yeah, I haven't in my madness, I haven't quite given up on it yet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope it gets to the States. When I read the description of it, I said like, Oh shit, that sounds really good. And, and yes. a, another member of our discord saw it and said, fuck, I really want to read that. <laughs> That's great. So there's, I, there's, there are people who want this. I think you could sell 
1,100 copies in America? Come on. I think you could do it. I, I think it makes sense as a, as a small press title. Absolutely. So that's why I've been so on, and my agent as well has been so assiduous about continuing to push it here and there. Yeah. Now, a little bit earlier, you mentioned that one of the reasons that you can cross genres so well is that you never really developed a personal brand. Hmm. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about maybe why you chose not to do that and, and your thoughts about personal branding? I really didn't. I didn't choose not to, to choose to do it. That's a thing. I thought, <laughs> I, I think probably like I've always sort of had, I, I mean, I, I hope going through this conversation, people realize that I very much separate myself when I'm writing from how I discuss writing and how I discuss certainly the business of writing. Like I don't have that sort of Swifty Lazar glasses, like crazy focus on what's going to sell when I'm actually making something. But in those early days when I was, I, I, I thought my brand would be, he does so many different things, which to some degree it is, but that's not a good brand to help you sell a book. No. Of course. But I think the, there's great author brands that are come upon very naturally, very honorably. This person writes a certain way. Their first book does well. Their second book is in that vein as well. It does well. And people grow attached to that style. And then certain things about the author that they also enjoy, whether it's that they're a recluse, whether it's that they wear cool sweaters, the brand just sort of develops that way. So I think it can be something that is shaped by the market, by perception, by audience, and it's very natural and has nothing to do with that artist being any sort of hack. Then there are also brands that are completely built. There's brands that are built on diversity and activism, for example. Like you can be a real, an, you can be strident about being an activist as well as a writer. Right. And that can be part of your branding, which I'm often suspicious of. But then a lot of those people, especially when they're nonfic writers, are absolutely sincere, committed people who that that work is as important to them as their writing. So that's another way you can, I think, be sort of a, a clean branded writer. But then I think there's also some commercial world writers who nail the brand first and then find the book to fit, I think. They have yeah. this idea, which is similar when you're a kid and you imagine what it's like to be a writer and you're imagining the interviews and the way your book feels in your hands before you're wondering what you actually want to write about. Right. Right. There's a lot of that. I want to be a writer, but not really wanting to write all that yes. much. <laughs> That's right. Or even finding it's so interesting when if you're if if there's nothing they particularly are interested in or want to say, or if they're they don't like stories, like they don't like making up stuff. I always find that so strange that because who would want to be in 2022 a book writer? It's such a strange it's it's lost so much of its cachet and certainly so much of its mystique and oh yeah there's so much of its there's zero power. prestige and no yeah. money it's a weird fantasy to have you should fantasize about being like a twitch streamer who plays absolutely games and stuff. that's twitch that's streamers cool. definitely make more money than writers do absolutely yes <laughs> and and have, probably have more cultural reach it it really is true yeah <laughs> your nonfiction book was called curry. Eating, reading, and race. And in this in this nonfiction book, you talk about what you refer to as curry books, which sort of ties into these issues of identity and, and, and limits and being stuck into a little niche. What is a curry book? Curry book was my, my very juvenile but very useful term that I sort of came up for the kind of, uh, they're sort of the diasporic book of the month club 
books that my parents seemed to like just have coming into the house all the time. They would they would be about um Indians that I, in the diaspora mean meaning like South Asian people who are no longer in India or in Pakistan, who are somewhere in the West, and there would always be an element of nostalgia and longing. And often it was memories tied up in in food, whether it was Amma's mango tree or like the certain scent of curry leaves that, of the food cooked in that kitchen. There'll be a scene of those curry leaves being mailed to the West and a curry being made and some sort of connection to the homeland is, is being made. And there's a sense that the uh, that life in the West can never be satisfying. At, in the West, you're an outcast and there's some sort of truth to be found at home. Those are the very broad strokes of what these what my teenage interpretation of what these books were like. I was a big reader as a kid, so were, so were my parents as at that age and still. It was only a small part of what they read, but I, I was really, I didn't like these books. There's something about them that I, I didn't like. And uh, perhaps I was just having a flash forward to what my own career would be. Because the very, the first short story I wrote that made any sort of impact that, that won a prize for me was in some ways, a curry book. It, it was called Cinema Rex. It was about the opening of a movie theater in, in Mauritius, which is where my parents come from. The opening night, Night of the Hunters playing, and then sort of in the footnotes of that story, you see the futures of two of the kids of, in the story, and one of them becomes a film composer writing giallo music in Italy, and then eventually going on to write an, an Oscar-winning score for some, some sort of 1980s Hollywood film. And the other one becomes an academic who tries to be a director and never quite makes it. But both of them, both of them love that they've escaped Mauritius. They, they love that they've escaped the West and they never look back, essentially. So that, that's what that story was. But then I realized as I started, ma- started mailing out my, my uh, guy who's obsessed with serial killers thriller, oh boy, this was not what people were expecting from me. I realized that what they were expecting from me was one of those books that was turning up in my parents' house when I was a teenager. Mm. Yeah, so... Has, has that ever been expressed to you overtly or is it just something you're kind of picking up on? Like, oh, I'm, I'm of the Indian diaspora. I got, I got to write a curry book. That's, that's such a great question. Like it, it is, it's something I, I think it's so important to ask yourself that all the time when you're, when you, it's again, like, did I write a perfect book that the only reason someone could dismiss it is because of, of this? The, and the answer is no. Like I got a lot of, I, when I, when I uh, floated that I might be turning Cinema Rex into a novel, I tried to do that for a while. I got a lot of excitement about that. Whereas I got a lot of, oh, interesting when I said I wrote thrillers as well. Hmm. So that there was a sort of like, there was some evidence there. Other evidence being the other books by South Asian writers that were being published in Canada at that time. I mean, there's a couple of, except Pashamala is a writer who comes to mind from here who has never written like that, but... A lot of authors with South Asian names have written things that could fit into the those parameters that I just described to you, and that's that's been a big part of their careers. I should also mention that a lot of curry books, as I discovered both as I got older and researched for this book, are actually really good books. <laughs> There's a lot of books that fit that profile that are excellent novels. Monica Ali's Brick Lane comes to mind. I really thought that was going to be it was going to be my comp title for like this is a box ticking bad diaspora novel that's just about nostalgia. No, it was actually very complex with really interesting characters. Very chastening. It just happens that I couldn't write one of those books if I tried because it doesn't access any feelings or experience that I have. Mm. Now, why do you think that is, that you it just doesn't connect to you? Because I don't have any longing 
or for the truth of the homeland. For, for one thing, I've only visited the place where my parents came from a couple of times. And for another thing, I feel that there, there should be a space in the market for the, the stories of immigrants. I don't want to use my parents as an example because we've really never talked about this in detail. But people I think that were, what I think my parents are like, which is that they're very happy to have emigrated and they're, they don't have, feel a pull back there. They've enjoyed the occasional visit back, but their life was elsewhere. And uh, nostalgia is certainly a part of how they discuss their past, but they, they're, they're stories that are sort of happily left behind. And I, I feel like perhaps that I inherited a bit of that. I, I don't have, for all my curiosity about history in the past and the rest of the world, I don't have that sense of bonded connection to, to that path that my ancestors have followed and come from. I feel it's a very important part of my identity, but at the same time, I feel that my own interrogations of it are almost more interesting to me than going there and finding some sort of connection or truth. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. Now, you chose to call this book Curry and, and to call these this type of book Curry books, and you mentioned that food plays a really, really big role in a lot of these narratives. Why do you think there is such a, an emphasis on food in these kinds of books? It's for one thing, it's a go-to. Like it's, it's actually interesting. I've read, I've been lucky enough to like read a lot of stories by high schoolers and college kids, just, just for teaching stuff or contest stuff. And it's so interesting that a go-to still like since, and this has been around since the eighties, it's still getting that weird piece of fruit or that pungent element in your lunch and all the other kids looking at you and, and, and mocking you. And I understand that this is true to the experience of a lot of people, but I always find it so... Sp- I grew up in like a, a really a small city in Western Canada where I was literally in many classes, the only person who wasn't white. It's always interesting to me when someone who grows up in Toronto, the most diverse city in, in North America, is still writing about these experiences. It's, it's interesting to me. I just think, I feel like it's almost like the... The genre trope has overwhelmed reality. I'm not calling anybody a liar, but I just feel that if you're in like in a classroom in downtown Toronto, and if you're in the cafeteria, the chances of you being the only brown person there and everybody else is white and has never heard of a samosa, pretty slim. Right. So I, I feel like it's it's both like a very easy entry because it's also the first thing you get to look to learn about other people's cultures when you're not when you're a child or you're not interested in culture necessarily but you'd like eating good things it was in fact my parents cooked mauritian food which is close to indian food but going to vancouver and eating sort of uk style curries which i didn't realize at the time were not really indian food per se but like a, a certain permutation of, of northern indian and punjabi cuisine mm. um that that was my first exposure to being south asian in a larger sense not just being mauritian so it's it's it is an interesting introduction to things and Curry itself, it just, it's such a great, it's, it's useful as a book title because it's a catch-all term for food. It basically right. means like something with a sauce, really. And uh, it can be a leaf as well. It can be so many different things. And, you know, when somebody, when you say, do you like Indian food? Curry is the next word that probably comes to mind for most people. In right. And I just found it has like this really unique, distinct cultural trail has so much to do with colonialism and imperialism. 
it's the stuff of a much better book than mine. And there have been so many great historical books about, about curry, about spices. Do you think these narratives, do you think it, part of it might come from this idea of consumer choice as political action? That's really interesting. I mean, I think so. Yeah, I, th I think that's kind of, yeah, that's what I'm touching on when I say it's a first point of experience for a lot of people. But it's interesting in that one place, when I was doing a bit more food writing, which I've really, I'm not, I haven't done much of for, for the past long time, it was sort of at the height of the, uh, the debate around should these white people in Oregon be running a, a taco truck? Should, should these uh, white people in, uh, in Toronto have a broth place that's like, that uses a lot of Asian techniques and is near, near a, a great Vietnamese restaurant? I'm almost a hardliner in that I, I think appropriation discourse is really overused in food world. I think there's a lot of ways of respecting other races and other people while still boring and cooking and using different foods and it's not cultural erasure basically so but i did see a lot of the kind of um moralizing that you're discussing popping up there and, and also a lot of the the leveraged power gaming that i discussed in a hero of our time popping up there that was a great way to sort of focus attention on your virtue as a chef or your virtue as a, as a cultural journalist and then also a lot of those people were really impassioned and truthful about how much it meant to them to keep these dishes culturally authentic. Where I kind of um, stray a bit from that is the idea that a dish can only be cultural, culturally authentic if it's cooked by someone from that race and cultural background. Mm. And also that the idea of authenticity in food isn't super complicated. Like, like with curry, I mean, the reason that chili peppers are in India at all is because of colonialism and trade. It's... It's a, it's a very complicated dish to make authentically and find out who the authentic person to make it is. You can fairly say they have the background. That right. That, that is something I've noticed when it comes to food authenticity and cultural appropriation discourse is that there's very little acknowledgement that so many of these ingredients are new world crops. Mm -hmm. That's you know, right. Like, yeah. I, I've definitely seen discourse around drinking chai, but I don't think I've ever seen discourse around drinking hot chocolate. Yeah, that's that's a great point. That's and true. Chocolate yeah. is, you know, that's yeah. a new world thing. That That is a thing that uh, pre-Columbian, the, the Mayans, I believe, or the Aztecs drank it. You know? And that's, I mean, honestly, that is a super interesting discussion to have. It's, it, it's but it'd be, it, it would look absurd to have it in an angry tone. It's more of like, isn't this interesting and weird? And also why... Why don't we talk about this? And we do talk about chai stuff, for example. Right. It's, it's uh. You'd have to get real mad at Italy with all the tomatoes. <laughs> that's right. Beat the shit out of the Irish for eating potatoes. I don't know. Absolutely. Yes. It's, it's all. I mean, it's a very complicated hodgepodge, and food writing world is is so. It's a very polarized place these days. I think. Yeah. I'm I'm happily out of it. Yeah, yeah. I and I can't help but wonder if it's just like. And there's an emphasis on food because, I mean, first of all, everybody has weird food neuroses for, for yeah. various reasons. But also it's kind of easy. Like, oh, I'm ordering food. I'm authentic now. That's right. It's easy. Yeah, that's right. And it's also, it's emotional too. Like oh, people yeah. have this bond to it and it's something that makes their own culture real to them. Even if it turns out that the way that their mother makes dish X has everything to do with the grocery store in, in whatever Midwestern town. Oh, yeah. My mother did not make her own sofrito. 
Oh no. Did not. <laughs> I'm I'm off this podcast. That's it. Yeah, we had a lot of canisters with the word Goya on them in that house. <laughs> I see. I see. Now, why do you think curry books proliferate in the way that they do? I know your parents are reading them. Who else is reading them? I'm just thinking of the fact that these are that writers from diverse backgrounds might feel pushed to write these certain types of narrative. And given the fact that the publishing industry, I, I'm guessing it's in, in Canada, the problem's just as bad as it is in the United States, that the publishing industry is super, super white. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, to answer like sort of the brown side of it first, I think there is a lot of shared experience there in the sense of like, oh, this is what my parents are like, and this is how they react to like my modern ways or my white boyfriend or my white girlfriend. And this this genuinely is how they do seem to feel with their homeland. So there is that first authentic response. And then I think because it's 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 become a comfortable and homey genre in a lot of ways, I feel like it's a way to return to these sort of comfortable feelings that may or may not reinforce the realities of your brown life in the West, of, of a sense of, that, that that sort of nostalgia escape is something desirable and actually a part of you. You you enjoy retreating to the, the world of, of those longings. Expanding it to a white readership, you'll see this in the Goodreads for them all the time. I learned so much about Indian culture from this, or like, you know, Mumbai seems amazing, I really want to go there. Or arranged marriages seem so complicated and awful. Just there's There's a lot of cultural tourism to it. Some of it very curious and well-minded, some of it you know, a bit, let's see what these weird people are like, of course. And then I, I think there's like almost a more, there's a more recent strain of curry book, which is sort of about, it's kind of like a sort of Lily Singh diversion where, where the parents are, are these absurdities and the uh, one's, one's immediate cultural background is kind of embarrassing, but, but being a person of color in the West and embracing that you have this nebulous, old culture that's actually really cool and has a lot of cultural currency right now that's very cool and that's where the hero tends to find themselves at the end is understanding they're a totally westernized cool person but everybody also understanding that hey being brown is pretty cool too and yeah as you can probably tell from brick lane's a great book there's a ton of curry books but that most recent strain i've discussed i really don't like them <laughs> i think they're so bad because i, I really do feel that they're um it, it really is like making fun of your dad's accent to make your friends laugh. It's, it's, uh, it, it has a strong reek of that, which of course, you know, all, all of us do that. It is very funny, but it's at a certain point, it becomes about sort of reinforcing white normality and a very like distinct identity politics of today um, party line while still tacitly poking the reader in the ribs being like, well, obviously life in the West rules and is the best. And but I'm from like a magical cool kingdom that I don't have any curiosity about. But even if my parents talk funny, I still have a cultural cachet that you never will. And that's part of their triumph. How can a writer break out of the pressure to create a curry story? It, so it sounds like there's a lot of incentive to do it. You may, might get a it might be a little easier to sell your book or maybe it'll get more buzz. I mean, the, the award, the industry, people who hand out awards and I guess you could call them the gatekeepers, I'm guessing really do like these types of books a little bit more. Yes, I, I think so. Because I, 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 
I've definitely noticed that at least in in my own genres and my own side of the publishing industry that Mm -hmm. certain types of stories, certain types of Latinx stories Mm -hmm. definitely sell easier and get more buzz. They're more likely to get awards. They're more likely to be held up as like, this is the good story. This is, this is important. This is so important. It's so important that you read this story. Absolutely. Yes. And then other kinds that are, are just as authentic, quote unquote, really don't get that kind of buzz and it is like white non-latinx people in the industry who get to determine what's the one that gets to be called important yes yes and the way i mean i i don't think that most of the people who write these books either the ones that i was just torching or the good and bad curry books of of yore I think that almost all of them write them because it's exactly what they wanted to do. Whereas I wrote the one that I wanted to because it's exactly that what I wanted to do. But I think in terms of if you're feeling a pressure to write that certain, and you brought up the Latinx thing. I really do think there are, there's a rainbow of great books. Every single culture I've, I've talked to people of yeah, so many different Yeah, I don't know what you call the Latinx like, one, yeah. salsa books or something. Whatever. Exactly, yes. <laughs> I, 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 I so somebody, somebody Latinx interviewed me and she used a certain fruit term because she'd, she'd read like the same fruit mentioned in like three stories in a row. And she Papaya? Really mango? It might have been papaya. It really might have been papaya. might be papaya. Guava? Yes. Guava would work too. But oh, I think it was yeah, because mango is not that specific. Mango, you get a ton of those in Southeast Asia. It's not you just need to look at the cover of, of three of them and we'll, you'll find the fruit, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but... I think it would be interesting to pursue doing one just purely commercially because it would be a good idea. And I think it is such a, in some ways, such a codified genre, especially as literary fiction starts tending towards more commercial conventions as years pass. You could find a way to write a curry book and do a good job if you wanted to do that and sell a book to the market. But I don't know. I feel like that would, and it it might feel like I'm going to write a cool YA vampire novel that I think people would really like and it's not close to my heart but i'm gonna do the best job that i can yeah you can write anything in that way i think and still craft something that's good that's technically good and will work for the market but when it comes time if you're really torn about should i write something that is totally false to me or not you're having more problems than just the market that's that that actually would make me feel so pained for that writer like you can't that can't be what's most important about writing to you. That can't be, or else you've really chosen the wrong thing to do. It's a torturous thing to do if you're not loving what you're writing, unless you're treating it as pure craft and and pure money-making, in which case I'm sure it becomes an interesting challenge and problem. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you just see it as a day job and don't really attach much emotion to it, it can be pretty easy, I'm sure. But yeah, I mean, pro- a whole different set of challenges, basically, I'd say. Like, I'm sure... There's a lot of people who'd like to do exactly that and end up selling six copies of their of their self pub on Amazon. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's 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 its own tough racket. It sure is. I should ask, how does your own work deviate from this template of curry stories, or do you ever feel like you're intentionally pushing back against it? Are you ever tempted to rebel against it a little too hard to the point where you're almost becoming contrarian? Is there ever a temptation or anything to do that? I, I mean, 
I wrote a book called Curry, and it does have things in it about my family. It has a recipe from my mom. I tried to be like pretty conscious about how there is a there is always going to be a lot of this, especially like in the age of identity right now. Mm-hmm. How can I not? How could this not become a part of my work? Right? How could I not? Because I've been thinking about it in one way or another since since I was you know a callow teenager choosing that that pen name and realizing oh there's more to this choice than just liking aliens. I really do think that, I mean, there's there's a fake Curry book chapter nested in A Hero of Our Time. The, the hero's father sort of dictates a chapter of his memoir to his son, not to get it tight, but just to prove to his son that I, your dad, am a better writer than you too. He writes like what I intended to make, this could actually be a publishable good chapter of a book like this that actually ends up being one of the good ones. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm super conscious of it, but I really don't don't want to do this sort of thumbing my nose, I'm a literary rebel thing in a in what's supposed to be a work of art. I think that's going to always, that will destroy your, it will destroy your project if you have a project, if you have that kind of agenda. So what I just try to do is, you know, be aware of these conventions and just know that they're not going to sneak in on me, but they'll always be interesting to play with. Yeah, like there's an awareness, but I feel like if you devote yourself too hard to defying it, you just end up being a photo negative of the thing, which is you're that's still right. defining yourself by the thing. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did find it interesting how Hero of Our Time deals with food, though, which it, it doesn't strike me as one of those books. When he goes home to see his mother, she just doesn't even offer him tea. <laughs> That's right. Yes. I think she's, she's just had it. All those dinner parties, all those dinners, she's, she emerges as a lot of people like the character they like the most. And I actually saw that in a lot of my rejection letters. Interestingly, is like, I wish there'd been more of the mother and I wish there'd been more of the relationship between the son and the mother. I mean, of course, a lot of the point is that they, they don't have a relationship and that's, right. why those, that's why those moments count. But yeah, she's, you know, she's someone who's a trained psychologist. She didn't end up having that career. And, you know, why do you have to make something for your son just because he comes home, for God's sake? Disclaimer, this is not at all what my parents are like. <laughs> That's they good read, to they know. read way more than just curry books, too. But yes, of course, like what it's a, it's a cold and alienating home that he comes back to and that he's created for himself. But yeah, right. That, I found that interesting, too, just because so often it's in these types of books, it's the mother or the grandmother who's... Mm-hmm who's, you know, the passage back to the old country, whatever that is, and and, and the sense of authenticity. And there's, there are so many abuelas, so many That's abuelitas. Right. There are no yeah. abuelos in these stories. <laughs> well, mother becomes motherland. It's really simple math. And it becomes that in so many of these books. And it's, I don't get it. I don't get offended by literature that much. But I do find like, it's hard to be offended by a, a fictional character not being fleshed out too much. But when you see that recur over and over, that all of a sudden this character just flatly becomes a reflection of of Pakistan or of Colombia, it's just, it's gross. And it, it does the character a disservice. But of course, the character never existed to begin with because the writer didn't care to, to, to flesh them out. Right. Yeah. It is a little frustrating, at least for me, seeing it become a little dehumanizing at particularly that it's applied to female characters so much yeah yeah and not always by male writers either 
Like no. so many these these are very I think there's probably more more women writers than male literary writers right now. And yeah, yeah and it's certainly like a trope that's very like cross cross gender. And yeah, I mean it's just it's it's become one of those it's a new stock character. It's like a really it's a cliche writ large, like a it's a striding human cliche on the page and it's just such a bummer. And that's I think I think that is why that character leaps out to to people who even don't respond to the to hero over time is that she is so atypical and they and because she's only on stage for like a couple of key chapters there's just something arresting about seeing you cannot help but open that chapter knowing he's gone going home to visit his mom and to expect three or four things that do not manifest in that chapter at all right instead you've got this like almost Don DeLillo-esque dressing down that is also very cold and remote and there are no arrowroot cookies and there's there's no there's no chai Right. He's, he, he doesn't step through the doorway and the smells of, yes. of his ancestors suddenly waft yeah. to. Yeah. There's, there's more. To, I wish I didn't, I hadn't had to just stick you with a PDF. I think you'll enjoy her when she comes back. So but it's, <laughs> I've, I've discovered, I think it's a good novel for uh, putting down and picking up again, which is not really an asset you can plan for a craft. Like you can't make a book like that, but I think with, a lot of my non-reader and writer friends who don't read a ton and read 50 pages and return to a book after a month, it's mm -hmm. still, it's the, the story stays alive for them. It's still there. So. Yeah. Yeah. I have noticed that because I have been reading it in drips and drabs, taking breaks in between. And, and occasionally after there was that chapter in which our hero's sort of girlfriend tells a billionaire in a bookstore that he and his heterosexual wife were queering straightness. And I was like, oh, I gotta, I'm got i going to put this book down for a little while. <laughs> I'm, I'm upset now. <laughs> it was supposed to be upsetting. I, I, it I is. And it is. It, I yeah. definitely see. I'm, I'm, how yeah. was it when you wrote that? Were you cacked maniacally oh, and sadistically? Made me, it made me sick to write it. It made the character sick to say it. And it works really well as a it, line. It sure character. does. Exactly what he wants to hear. It was very hard not to groan out loud at my desk because I was reading it at work because I'm committing time theft. <laughs> Going, oh, my God. Oh, that's great. That makes me very happy. <laughs> well, that's good. Now... Let's see. We've been talking for about an hour. Do, do you have any words or, I don't know, advice or, or what is your philosophy on writing beyond or writing outside of the usual niche, writing outside of what people might expect you to write? I think it's about, it's about pursuing the particular in yourself, in your life. And that's going to be the thing that's most interesting to write about. And I find with virtually every writer of quality that 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 thing that is particular to them ends up being something that can't necessarily be restricted to a certain kind of writing and ends up manifesting in different ways so i think i think that sort of digging work psychologically ends up resulting in a lot of different kinds of stories and it is okay to be writing those different stories i never i must also add that i never th think about it that way until i'm away from the page and just I have ideas and I write them but I think that must be it like especially when I as you pointed out the overlaps between what I thought were like really really different projects like a super contemporary literary novel and a horror novella set in the early 19th century but they end up having they share so many of the same concerns and they they look at bodies in so many of the same ways and 
that's because of the way I am. Like in, in a, in a strange way that even though I don't write autobiographical fiction, that's, that's the stuff that, that ends up on the page that makes a book matter. Well, that's great. Thank you for coming on the show and taking the time to talk to us. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really liked it. Yeah. And before we go, where can our listeners find your work? The most recent horror book, Help Meet, is from Undertow Books. It's, I think, available at all the usual places as an, as an ebook. And if you go to Undertow Publications, their website, that you can get it there too. Um, Here Over Time, for now, only available in Canada or by going through annoying things like eight books or whatever. And then the thrillers, I think, yeah, those are those are published all over the place. So yeah, finding the dark, your life is mine. You can, you can, uh, they're by my my friend Nathan Ripley, and you can look for those. And I, I still quite like those books. And Curry was published by Coach House Books, which has very good distribution into the states and Canada at least. So yeah, it's still around. And yeah, I think available in all of them are available in audio formats and ebook formats. Oh, nice. As well as the normal ones. Yeah. And Help Me, it's great. It's a it's a novella. It's a really short book. It's I, I've read a lot of reviews of people saying I devoured it in one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it is nice. It's it's like at the shorter end of a novella. So the it's such a bummer that Undertow makes like such pretty good looking books. Or else I'd just refer just say like I'll buy the ebook. But every Undertow book is really like he puts in the design work. They they do such a good job. So you might want to own it if you like the story. Well, thanks again for coming on. And thank you, audience, for listening. That's all for this episode. If you like what you heard, head to patreon.com slash write good and subscribe. Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by Surgery Head. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. Kittysneezes.com in color. <laughs> <laughs>